Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm a little bit unimpressed of the discipline and the training level of the Russian forces. As bad and as horrific as this is, we want to make sure that we do not see an escalation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. My sense is that commodity prices will remain very high, elevated, certainly over the next few months, probably the first half of the year. You Republicans want to give Democrats a victory on getting tough with China. On a political basis, the answer is no. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden told Chinese President Xi Jinping there would be consequences if China aids Russia during its invasion of Ukraine. We will talk to experts to get a better understanding of what that means going forward. We've got a great show for you today. My name is Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm co-hosting with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. We're in for Joe, who's off today. We promise he will be back soon. We're going to bring in Brian Klein, founder of Ridgepoint Global and a former U.S. diplomat in Beijing shortly to talk to us. We're also going to hear from June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law here on Bloomberg Radio, to talk about Katanji Brown Jackson's upcoming hearings for her Supreme Court nomination next week. And, of course, we'll bring in our reliable panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Now, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki described the call that happened this morning, the nearly two hour call that happened between Presidents Biden and Xi uh, describing uh, their conversation on the Russia-Ukraine situation as well as Taiwan. Let's hear what she had to say about today's phone call. The vast majority of the nearly two hours was spent with the president outlining the views of the United States and our allies and partners on this crisis, including a detailed overview of efforts to prevent and then respond to the invasion, how we got here, steps we've taken, where where we've gone and why. Um, and uh, of course, as was also noted in the readout, but let me just reiterate, uh, he also uh, conveyed uh, and, and described the implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia. So that is the White House description. They put out a readout uh, saying that President Biden warned of consequences if China provides support to Russia. They put that in writing. Let's bring in Brian Klein, founder of Ridgepoint Global, who was a U.S. diplomat in Beijing uh, 2006 through 2008. Brian, really happy to have you on with us. We heard the White House's description. We saw China's description saying that this invasion is not what they wanted. Can you give us a little bit of a compare and contrast between the U.S. and Chinese descriptions of this uh, video call between the two presidents? And what's your main takeaway? I think the main takeaway is that, one, China got out in front with their readout way before the U.S. did. And interestingly, they chose strategic ambiguity this time. Usually that's what the U.S. prefers when they talk about things like Taiwan, but China was very ambiguous in their reply. Yes, they support a peaceful outcome. How is that going to happen? There are no specifics, and we don't know what that means in practice. The U.S. also came out with a statement that didn't have a lot of detail, 
part of that, I think, is because they're being very diplomatically sensitive to dealing with China, and they don't want to lay it all out on the table. But these consequences are going to be because all that's going to do is potentially either embarrass China, uh, make the U.S. look like a, like they're bullying China. All things that diplomatically would get the reverse response that they want, which is for Beijing to kind of step back from uh, their support of Russia. Um, overall, you know, it's better that they're talking. We don't know much more than we knew going into this, you know, a few hours ago. Um, but I think it would be highly unlikely that China is going to go forward with like, full-scale military support for Russia at this time. So on that point on the ambiguity from China, is the U.S. really trying to get China to pressure Russia in some way necessarily? Or is the goal, does it seem, uh, to ensure that China is truly neutral rather than speaking neutrally while aiding Russia? It's, it's probably more on the keeping China neutral part, because I don't think anyone would realistically think that China is going to go out of their way to tell Putin to stop. One, I don't think Putin would listen. And two, China doesn't like being put in that position by anybody. If they wanted to do that, they could have done it already. They didn't need the U.S. or anybody else to kind of try to push them to do it. So the best outcome right now is for the U.S. is if China just kind of stays neutral, stays out of it. Um, because if they do get involved, and as Janzaki said, there would be repercussions, and they would be pretty severe. Um, they would have to be pretty severe. And I don't think China really wants to get too deep in the weeds here. And while things are going so badly for Putin, you know, they could get worse and he could use biological chemical weapons. And China certainly doesn't want to be, you know, uh, associated with that kind of activity. So from the U.S. perspective, it's, it's ideal if China just kind of backs away and, and kind of stays on the sidelines. Brian, I'm also wondering what your readout of Putin's mood is right now. Is he worried that the U.S. and China had this call today? He's got to be at least a little bit nervous. I mean, there were reports that he was asking for military help. Moscow denied it. Beijing denied it. But we know that his war effort is not going well. We know his troops are have poor logistics. Some of them don't even have food to eat. Um, and he doesn't. Putin doesn't have many places to go, if at all, to get help. So now he sees the U.S. and China talking without him, and he also must know that China's going to act in its own self-interest. And even though they had a joint, you know, communique of sorts by saying, yeah, they have this really strong friendship, he knows that it's not just about friendship, it's not just about ideology for China. It hasn't been like that for decades. China's most important goal here is political stability at home and a strong economy. And if the U.S. can make it clear that those two things are potentially at risk, if Beijing gets too far involved with Moscow, uh, Putin's going to be left completely alone on this, and he's running out of options. And Brian, I mean, I, I feel like we can assume the answer to this a little bit, but I want to hear it from, from you, someone who's an expert, a former U.S. diplomat who was stationed in Beijing. I mean, why why doesn't China just go ahead and criticize Russia for their invasion of Ukraine? China seems very comfortable being say, say it wants peace, that it doesn't want to invade Ukraine, that, you know, it's not supportive of this conflict. Why doesn't China just, just come out and criticize Putin at this point? Well, a couple of that's a really good question. A couple of reasons. One, I think there's a certain diplomatic sensitivity that people underappreciate in the collective West. And 
watching how China engages with the world. For one, they don't often like to embarrass or or push other countries into a corner, except lately in the case of the U.S. because things have gotten so bad. But in general, they don't like to be seen as the one telling all these other countries what they should be doing. They keep saying that they believe in you know borders and to some degree the international system as it exists, and they want to be seen as a leader in that regard. But at the same time, you know, they pull back when it comes to uh, when, when things get really hot, when things get really difficult. Um, and they have a longstanding, you know, history with with Russia. Uh, way back when, pre-Kissinger times, you know, there was a, a there was the Sino-Soviet kind of um, not really a formal alliance, but they were very close. And then Kissinger came in, and he managed to convince uh, that, that the future lay, uh, you know, away from Russia's orbit. But there are still historical ties, there are cultural ties, there are ideological and political ties, and China's not incentivized in any way to kind of go out on a limb now and just kind of put Putin in his corner or to to overtly criticize them. So, Brian, we've asked about uh, what this message, what this, what kind of messages this sends to Putin. But on the flip side, what message have the sanctions on Russia sent to China, uh, particular with regards to Taiwan? I think it gives them pause. I mean, a lot of people have been saying this, and no one really knows what China wants to do regarding Taiwan. Whether they're, you know, happier to continue to try to, you know, eat away little by little. Uh, try to influence them politically, and not try to raise us to the level of, of warfare. Um, and nobody really knows then what happens after Xi Jinping gets his third term in office, which is unprecedented. He'd be the longest-serving Chinese ruler, and you know it's even unclear how much longer he could rule after that. Maybe it's just indefinite. Um, so people figured he's incentivized by the you know after the fall of this year or so, or really by the end of the year, he's He'll be willing to take more risks politically. Well, now you look at what happened with Russia and how quickly almost the entire world was galvanized to support Ukraine. I mean, it was fast, and it was complete in, in the way that Russia's been cut off from the economic global economic system, how uh, trade is stopping, how exports are no longer flowing, how the ruble is crashing. I mean... The fact that this happened with such clarity and with such unanimity of purpose must give Xi Jinping some pause, because something similar would happen if he were to invade Taiwan. And even more critically, I mean, this is primarily a European and NATO, and U.S. being part of a NATO, being part of NATO uh, issue. But when it comes to Taiwan, you have a lot of other interests that come into play. I mean, you have Japan. Right. That comes, there are contested islands, and then say, well, if China's going to try to grab Taiwan, what are they going to grab next? Similarly, Putin's grabbing Ukraine. What is he going to grab next? I mean, there would be international condemnation that would come so quickly, and it would threaten stability in China economically. I don't think Putin is. I don't think she is ready for what Putin is going through right now. Very briefly, Brian. Aside from Taiwan, given that the White House's warning of repercussions if China were to materially aid Russia, what kind of repercussions are on the table in that instance? I think it would be very similar to what's happening with. Uh, first, it depends on what kind of 
aid it is. Like, say, for example, China gave you know, MREs or gave food or something as opposed to giving weapons. Um, if they were to give weapons, I think they would find sanctions right away. I mean, and they would, they would be ratcheted up very quickly. And if it got so bad that, uh, you know, that these weapons were considered crucial to the war effort for, for Russia and they came from China, you, you would potentially, potentially see a cutting off of the economic financial right. system. Brian, thank you so much. Scenario. Thank you so much for joining us. Brian Klein, founder of Ridgepoint Global and a former U.S. diplomat in Beijing. Let's go to the panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan Zeno. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we just heard from Brian Klein, who served for a few years as a U.S. diplomat in Beijing, that in his words, China's most important goal here is stability at home and a strong economy. Uh, that is important in the context of exactly what position China takes with regard to Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, co-hosting with my Bloomberg government colleague Emily Wilkins today. We're in for Joe, and we've got to bring in the usual all-star panel, Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Uh, guys, I, I thought it was interesting that Brian, in our last segment, a, a longtime uh, person who, who has understood China's motivations, said he was uh, taken by how vague China was in the words they chose to describe, uh, you know, as, as the Chinese said, they, this invasion is not what they wanted. Uh, all things considered, Jeannie, are you th do you think the U.S. is okay with some vague uh, words uh, of, uh, of China's position as long as they actually stay neutral? Or does the U.S. want to hear more from China on this? You know, I was struck, as Brian said to you, um, by how they got ahead on the readout and also how ambiguous it was. I was also uh, thought that it was pretty conciliatory towards the U.S.-China's readout. That said, just a couple hours prior to the call, China sends an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait tailed by an American destroyer. So to me, I think we come back to the same thing we've said about Vladimir Putin. You cannot listen to what they say. You've got to watch what they're doing. And what they're doing just before a call with, with President Biden is they're shooting an aircraft carrier, sending it right through the Taiwan Strait. And that speaks volumes in my mind. I also found it very interesting just looking at the statement that China put out. I mean, there's so much talk about peace and that the world needs to be tranquil and that they want to avoid conflict. This Honestly, it's the same vibe as like one of those stereotypical like Miss American speeches when they're like, what is the most important thing? And they're like, world peace. Um, and I'm wondering, Rick, you know, did this did this phone call move the ball at all? Because it seems like China's still kind of saying the same things after the call that they were saying before the call. 
Yeah, well, what they were saying before the call was both sides of the argument, you know, go Russia and, you know, uh, we're staying out. And and I think that 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 I hope the two hours that 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 Joe Biden spent with Chi on the phone included uh, a phrase, you can't have it both ways, because that's that's really what China's, quote, strategic ambiguity is. Right. Uh, and as Jeannie said, you know, we've got to watch what they do versus what they say. And and I think, you know, the, the, the American U.S. is pressing them to actually uh, reinforce what they claim they stand by, which is territorial integrity, right? When you talk about China and their views of the South China Sea and their territorial integrity, they say, you know, the rest of the world needs to lay off, right? We believe these are our territories. Well, what happened to the Ukrainian territorial integrity that is sealed by by treaties with Russia? And so, like, I, I think we should be pressing China to be outspoken against this war. I don't think they should get a pass just because they signed some stupid treaty, you know, with Russia that says that, you know, democracies are dead and, you know, us authoritarians are really going to be the future. Well, I want to ask a little more specifically on Russia, guys. Jeannie, I'm curious what you make of this. Vladimir Putin appeared at a rally in Moscow uh, today, actually, to commemorate the eighth anniversary of Russia's annexation of Crimea. Uh, and he talked about Russian unity during this war in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, Russia is quite isolated now, so it may be hard to answer this question. But what is our understanding of the mood in Russia uh, and how Putin's uh, message is resonating with his own people. Yeah, and if you just watched uh, that speech, which, you know, got cut <laughs> famously a little bit, um, you, you know that there were cheering crowds and signs and those kinds of things. And yet we also know that there are protesters out at great personal, you know, risk to themselves and their families out protesting. You know, I was particularly moved, as I'm sure you guys were, by Arnold Schwarzenegger's appeal right. directly to Russians. So, you know, the United States, the Western allies are trying to send in messages to do exactly what you're talking about, Jack, which is to move public opinion or at least get information into Russia as they can. And I think one thing that is scary about, you know, this issue of Xi and Putin and their famously best friend relationship and, you know, ice cream for their birthdays and all these kinds of things is at this point, it looks like Xi Jinping is the only person maybe in the world, the only world leader who can call Putin and say enough is enough. And as Rick was just talking talking about you look back at this February 4th declaration it doesn't look like that's likely to happen anytime soon unless it looks like Putin is absolutely lost on the battlefield and we don't I don't think we've reached that point yet I want to look ahead a little bit to next week when President Joe Biden is going to be in Brussels. He's going to participate in a NATO summit and also join the European Council meeting. Rick what's going to be Biden's goal for that trip? You know, I think uh, obviously number one is going to be showing a unity within the coalition that opposes uh, the incursion of Ukraine by Russia. So, you know, it, it's actually quite uh, unique and healthy for democracies to to sort of wave the flag a little bit. And I think this is a unique and, and, and really important opportunity for all those uh, Western democracies to come together and say, you know what, not dead yet, right? We've got a lot going for ourselves. And, 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 and so I think that's number one. Number two is to solidify ongoing pressure against Russia. And then nine times out of 10, that's going to be sanctions. And so uh, I think that uh, I would hope that they would even declare more additional sanctions. Maybe they're waiting for this moment to roll out secondary sanctions, which could be part of what uh, was included in the Biden-Chi conversation today, which is if you're doing business with Russia and we impose secondary sanctions, you could be up in the barrel next. 
Great insights, guys. That's our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. They'll be back later in the hour. Up next, though, we're going to talk to June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Joe, today I am Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. We are filling in for Joe Matthew. Well, the main event in Congress next week will be Judge Katanji Brown Jackson facing questions from the senators who will decide if she will become the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. You know, it used to be, from my understanding, a fairly non-controversial process. But in the last few years, nominating Supreme Court justices has become an absolute battle. Starting back in 2016, uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell denied President Obama's choice. Merrick Garland didn't hold any hearing, any vote for 10 months. Then we had that highly contentious hearing with Justice Brett Kavanaugh over allegations of a sexual assault when he was a teenager. That was followed by Republicans rushing through the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett a month before the elections, complete 180 by McConnell. And now here we are again. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson will have her confirmation hearing next week. Jack, is it going to be another bloodbath? Well, it's gotten a lot more controversial lately. Obviously, they, historically, there are counterexamples, Clarence Thomas, for example. Uh, but, you know, a lot of Republican senators, including uh, just a, a couple days ago, John Cornyn was talking to a group of us reporters uh, about how Republicans want to set sort of an example and focus on Judge Jackson's philosophy, not get into anything personal. They still kind of hold a grudge uh, about the, the extent of Democrats' questions uh, toward Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, obviously, you're going to hear some pointed questions from Republicans, but they are kind of trying to make a point about setting limits uh, on, on a judge's personal life. And to talk, talk about this a little bit more, we're going to bring in June Grasso. Uh, she's the host of Bloomberg Law. Uh, June, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to start off by asking what you are going to be watching from this hearing. Well, I think the hearing is going to be pretty cordial for a couple of reasons. The primary thing being that you have a liberal justice who's going to be taking the place of another liberal justice. And the conservatives have a strong majority on the court already. So that's one thing. I think that, you know, we know Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson because she's been through these hearings twice before, once for the district court and just last year for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So we've seen the kinds of questions that they've asked her, and I think a lot of them will be based on some of the cases that she has, you know, given opinions in. That would be cases involving, you know, racial discrimination, some cases involving Trump administration officials. But unfortunately for them, for the senators who want to question her, there there are no questions that are going to be asked about well, let me just put it this way. She has no opinions that she's written about hot-button topics like abortion or religious rights or affirmative action. So they're not going to be able to use her record 
against her. So those questions that they ask are going to be, you know, some kind of general questions about, you know, what it's like. I know that in the hearings for um, the D.C. Circuit, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley asked her some questions, some sort of, I don't know, nerdy questions, I guess I'd call them, about sentencing laws and sort of um, very technical things. And really, no one laid a glove on her. So we'll see if it gets any more animated than that. Well, June, you bring up a really good point that, you know, Jackson was just voted on last year in June after she was nominated for the D.C. Court of Appeals. Uh, Three Republican senators voted for her, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and Lindsey Graham. Are those three likely to vote for her again for the Supreme Court? And could we see even more Republican support for her? That's a tough question to answer. Lindsey Graham, they'll always say they always say this. It's different with the Supreme Court because there are only nine seats, so it's different than it is. And you saw how different it was for Brett Kavanaugh, what it went from him being on the D.C. Circuit to him being on the Supreme Court. So there is a difference, and right after she was announced, Lindsey Graham, who, as you mentioned, voted for her, tweeted something about how the Biden administration was going with a far-left agenda, something like that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that those will vote for her, those three. It's been said that Susan Collins met with her and said she had a very nice meeting, as they always say, and she's a possibility. Murkowski is involved in election coming up, and she may not want to vote for her, even though, you know, in other times she would because of the implications for her own election. And, you know, Lindsey Graham, I think he might vote for her, but you can't ever be sure. So, June, who, uh, what are the other senators we should be looking for, not only as ter- in terms of swing votes, potentially, but uh, looking back to the Kavanaugh hearings, there was a, a buildup, a, a few senators on the committee who uh, were looking to run for president and used it, uh, they got a, a very high-profile uh, chance to ask some pointed questions. Who are you looking for, either in terms of asking tough questions or looking for something high-profile to, to spring the, springboard them forward? Well, I think that high profile, it would be Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. And, you know, I think they'd have to work hard to come up with a question that is going to sort of take her off balance. She was asked on her confirmation hearings for the D.C. Circuit about her representing an inmate at Guantanamo. And, um, you know, that sort of fell flat because, as every lawyer knows, Everyone has the right to a defense, and so that sort of fell flat. Um, I don't see very much coming from a lot of her opinions. As I said before, the the one opinion that stands out to most people is the opinion that uh, had to do with former White House counsel Don McGahn's testimony where she said that presidents aren't kings. But that was a really well-documented opinion, and um, so I think she might be asked about that. But And then John Kennedy sometimes asks some very strange questions. <laughs> so who knows? I never know what he's going to ask because it could be anything. Well, so that's a possibility. You know, um, one quick question, June, but I want to get your thoughts quickly here. Senator Mitch McConnell said that senators need to explore the so-called dark money groups that have backed Jackson's nomination. Uh, is that something that you can see really factoring into her hearing here? We just have a, a few seconds left. I don't think so, unless, you know, they, I think it would be very hard to tie her to that, and it would look kind of shoddy to tie her to that. Mm-hmm. Um, she's had a great reputation as a judge, and I don't know if they really want to go down that with this nominee. 
got it. June Grosso, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, she is the host of Bloomberg Law. Make sure to listen into that. Coming up, we reassemble the panel, discuss both the Supreme Court as well as a surprise bill that passed the Senate on daylight savings time. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It is Friday. It is almost six o'clock. You have made it through another week, or at least I I hope everyone's making it through another week. This is Emily Wilkins with my co-host, Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick. We are reassembling the star panel of Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Uh, We just heard from June Grosso, um, the host of Bloomberg Law, a little bit on the hearing that will be next week for uh, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who is in line to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Janie, uh, we know that Brown was a clerk for retiring uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. Is she expected to be Breyer 2.0 on the bench, or does she deviate from her former boss in some key ways? She does deviate in some key ways, and we did see her sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, brothers and sister, uh, you know, Breyer fellow clerks come out and and support her nomination. Um, They said she would be a clerk in Breyer's, you know, like Breyer, but she certainly differs from him, I think, in some fundamental ways. You know, one, of course, is the work she did both as a defender, a public defender um, in private practice, um, you know, that is that is a key difference. Also, you know, as she ascends to the bench, it's not only an issue of gender and race, it's also the fact that she is a mother of two children. This is, uh, you know, she joins her her recently uh, appointed uh, Supreme Court justice as the, the second woman on the court currently with children. So there's a lot of differences there that I think may inform her work on the bench. So, Jeannie, I want to follow up on that, uh, just on the significance of her potentially becoming the first black woman on the Supreme Court. And I'm curious if you see that as a significant reason for what we're starting to hear from some Republicans, that they at least want to uh, stay away from personal attacks. Does that sort of uh, inspirational aspect of this uh, help keep things civil in these hearings, do you expect? You know, I would hope that they keep it civil. I have to say, I am not as convinced they are going to. If you look at some of the attacks that have come out, and, and June was absolutely right already by people like Josh Hawley. We, you know, we've heard some things from Mitch McConnell. And to your point, we hope that it would remain civil. But we have to remember, it's not just an issue of questioning her. It's also an issue of getting up. This is an opportunity for get up, for them to get up and put together advertisements for their future campaigns, for instance, and they will use this time to get the coverage they want to. So I suspect it may be a little bit more personal and pointed than some of us may wish. 
Well, there's certainly a lot of very important things that are going on Capitol Hill um, next week. Of course, as we mentioned, the the uh, nominee for the Supreme Court this week, a lot of focus on Ukraine, on you, on Russia. We had funding the government, but there's something we really need to talk about because everyone is talking about it on Capitol Hill this week. The United States Senate passed legislation that would permanently keep the U.S. on daylight savings time. No more moving your clocks, no more moving forward, no more falling back, no more struggling to wake up in the morning. And I just kind of wanted to start off, Rick, by just getting your general thoughts on this. You're a Senate guy. You've worked with senators before. This passed by unanimous consent, and it caught a lot of senators off guard. Have you ever seen anything like this actually happen before in the Senate? Well, it wouldn't be the first time that a senator didn't really know what he was voting for when he voted. So <laughs> I, I think that's probably not the unusual part. I, I think what's unusual is like, you know, Arizona and Hawaii leading the pack. And, you know, they're the two states that don't spring forward every year. And now the rest of the country is joining them. Uh, they're usually the tail not wagging the dog. And so this is really unusual. It'll actually be interesting to see if it mounts any opposition in the House. I've already seen a lot of articles about how, you know, not springing forward will ruin your circadian rhythm. So who knows what's going to come next on this issue? Yeah, so I would imagine there'd be a lot of logistics to work out. Actually, we know there would be a lot of logistics to work out if this were to become law. That's why even if it became law now, it wouldn't take effect until November 2023. And Rick, you know, the state by state stuff, uh, you know, Arizona, I lived in Arizona for a while. Arizona is one of those states that doesn't do daylight savings time. Uh, and yet the within Arizona and some other states, the Navajo Nation does. It can be very confusing. If this changes and daylight savings time uh, becomes permanent, Jeannie, what does that mean? I, are we going to see a bunch of state legislatures then maybe some want to opt out of that? Do they want to change time zones? There are some areas of the country where in the winter they would be getting uh, a, a, a sunrise after 9 a.m. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see if you see, as to your point, states and localities respond to this bill. You know, from from you know the perspective of some of us, myself included, I feel like this is such a welcome relief for those of us here in New York. Um, you know, it, it is hard when it is dark so early and yeah. all of those kinds of things. But but you can see this is going to be a very localized issue to your and Rick's point. You know, one thing I, I did want to add is, is just from my historical perspective, I think the United States Senate Sunshine Protection Act may be the best named bill I've ever heard of. So I just want to add that Everybody in. Everybody likes sunshine. We I love protect it. it. <laughs> protect it, Jack. <laughs> Uh, there's actually a, an interesting article, too, uh, Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, you can read it on the terminal. Uh, the headline is just say no to permanent daylight savings. Uh, and, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with this bill in the House. Leaders have said that they're still looking at it. But uh, the Bloomberg uh, Opinion editors are noting here that maybe the way to go is not daylight savings time, but to do the opposite to do what we have in November through March. Uh, that way there is going to be light out when kids are getting ready to go to school in the morning when we're all driving to work. Um, Rick Davis, I, I just want you to weigh in on this. Do you do you have a preference here for DST versus, I guess, just, just DT? 
You know, I, I think my greatest fear is uh, what you guys were just talking about, which is all these states get rogue and decide to set their own times. Uh, you know, th- this is what I've had to put up with for the 25 years that I worked with Senator McCain in Arizona, where sometimes it's three hours delayed from Washington and sometimes it's two. Uh, and, and, and honestly, it's so confusing that, uh, that I think if they could just settle on one thing. And, and I've heard the debate in Arizona that I think the senators there, Sinema and, and, and Kelly, I, I think are opting to say, why don't we just become mountain time? And, and uh, so I think that uh, you're right. A lot of these states are going to scramble. I, I think confusion could reign supreme. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that the Senate and the House did something that, you know, resulted in a rebellion from the states. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost irrelevant anymore with the modern uh, society we live in. Uh, you know, whether you're getting up with the dark or getting up with the light, uh, you, you, you know, that's what they make headlights for. Drive to work. Just make <laughs> sure you pay attention to the road. Well, we're talking about Arizona, uh, Senator Kirsten Senma, who was in the Senate chamber kind of presiding over things when it happened. Uh, she told BuzzFeed News that she was surprised that someone didn't object and then noted that Arizona, Arizona does not change its clocks, quote, because we're smart. Uh, that's that's such an Arizona way of putting it. Arizona is so comfortable standing out from the rest of America. You know, I actually was doing some research on this, and I have to give credit to the Reynolds Center on Business Journalism because they did this compilation of what are the, the industries and the groups that are for or against permanent daylight savings time. Uh, one that I found interesting, maybe confusing, was there's been this debate in Colorado specifically as to whether Colorado is also going to do permanent daylight savings. And the ski industry is against that, assuming that they would have to open later because the sun would rise later and people wouldn't stay later because they'd want to go home and beat the traffic. I don't know how logical that is. Uh, but Jeannie, do, do we know, you know, that's one example. Do we know who's really for this and against this? Yeah. And, and another group, to your point that I've heard that's for it on the other side, are people in the Sun Belt, people in tourist areas where the longer day means people will do the opposite. They will be out spending more money. And of course, as we come out, hopefully, of the pandemic and we see bars and restaurants and places where people spend money into the evening entertainment which has been so hard hit by the pandemic that is going to be you know potentially a welcome change so I I do think we're going to see you know these sort of fights for and against this depending on what people feel is in their interest you know one of the fascinating things you know I'm old enough to remember before we had all these you know convoluted iPhones and everything where you actually had to change the clock God forbid you forgot to do that. Oh. Yeah, Emily, now you wake up, it's changed for you. But there was a time, I could tell you, <laughs> where you had to do it manually. So we have it a little bit easier these days. Rick Davis, you remember that, I think. Back in the day, I'm, I'm looking forward to telling my kids about the, the days when we had to change our clocks. We've been talking with uh, Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis, uh, but we also, uh, it is Women's uh, History Month, and every day this month, we're celebrating significant moments in women's history. So we want to bring you our installment for today, Friday, March 18th. Here's Bloomberg's Renita Young. 
On this day in women's history in 1970, over 100 women staged a sit-in at the Ladies' Home Journal, occupying the office for 11 hours. They were protesting the way the magazine depicted female interests and perspectives. At the time, the staff of the Ladies' Home Journal was comprised mostly of men. Protesters argued that the content focused almost entirely on housework, beauty, and the support of the patriarchy. On that day, protesters made demands to the editor-in-chief, John Matt Carter, and senior editor, Leonor Hirsch, who was one of the only women on staff. Among those demands were the hiring of a female editor-in-chief and an all-female editorial staff, raising women's salaries and hiring diverse women. Later on in 1973, Hershey was named editor-in-chief. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much, Renita, and thank you as well to Ridgepoint Global founder Brian Klein, Bloomberg's June Grasso, and my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.